mind, I can feel the tip. My name is Matthew Kroll. And do I amuse you? My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Six Underground. So, uh, I guess we're two uh, underground are we in underground? Are we in, in the underground right now? Like the fact that we're living in our apartments? Are we like ghosts hiding away, like uh, ready to do good on the internet? I was going to say that we uh, are, are ghosts in the, in the podcasting world where only the select few that we have we that have found us we're like the men in black of podcasting we are like the people that find us are the best people but there's not a lot of them right like yeah. that's i think that's where we are so <laughs> right. you're all the best hi everyone welcome to the show Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being with us yet another week while we are trapped in our apartments. And uh, not, uh, I think, a, a situation that's going to be pretty much the same for a while. There are discussions right now of movie theaters being reopened anytime soon. But i got to be honest with you, Matt. If a movie theater opened up in Astoria a month from now, let's say, would you go? No! <laughs> not in the slightest would I would I risk myself uh, going to for the for the sake of entertainment. It's it's hard enough risking myself to go get groceries. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I I just the you know I movie theaters have opened up again in Texas as far as I know, um, and they are practicing social distancing. Yes. in the movies and you and there's half talk capacities. Of like, yeah, and there's, there's talk of like doing uh, temperature scans when people come into the movies and doing like a TSA type scan at the movies. And I think the Alamo Draft House has even talked about a no coughing policy at the movies, which I think is going to be really difficult to yeah, enforce. Yeah, how are you going to do that? But, but also, relative to all of this, like, even there, there's no scenario right now that I can see with the current. Uh, state of affairs and, and with what we know about coronavirus that I can see myself going to the movies. Not to mention, you know, all the companies are going to be like, we're taking every precaution. We are going to be cleaning the theaters per thing. Look, that's great on your fucking letterhead or whatever, but like straight up, the only way that these companies function, the big ones especially, AMC, Regal, all that shit, is minimum wage jobs, mostly high school kids. So I'm not going to, I don't care how many TSA style security measures they put in, it's still a, a kid waiting to get off work who's getting paid minimum wage to not give a shit. Like, and I'm not blaming the kid. The kid's giving as much of a shit as the kid should be for the wage he's getting paid. I'm saying I'm not going to put my health and well-being on the line to go see Black Widow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm very curious. I know we have listeners that uh, work in movie theaters uh, and have had their livelihoods affected by this. Yeah, summer. like we have asked, uh, you know, we have asked, and people have sent us messages, and we have talked about doing it. I'm just not sure exactly how to extend this conversation to a much broader state, other than to think about a couple of things. One is the extent, the the way the paradigm of movies and the way the paradigm of almost everything is changing sure. right now, and that we're going to have to consider in the future. And I, and you know, for 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 that, you know, public screenings are going to have to change the home entertainment business is going to have to change we're already seeing that um i think it's uh trolls 2 may have destroyed the relationship between universal pictures and amc yeah uh, which is amazing to think about um but essentially uh for a little bit of backstory for anyone who hasn't uh, been keeping up uh trolls 2 was surprise was released on vod you know uh, unexpectedly because of uh, obviously changes and universal had decided you know perhaps somewhat altruistically perhaps more from a bottom line perspective that there was a marketplace to be had it, for yeah. trolls 2 by releasing it to the home 
home theater uh, to, to home VOD. 100% uh, bottom line thing because they'd already spent most of their advertising money, so they would have had to double down if they they were so close to the release date that it was scheduled for. And it turns out this was a, a brilliant move because there are a lot of families at home with children who needed uh, who needed some entertainment. So uh, having that movie available to them uh, at home turned out to be very profitable for both uh, for Universal. However, uh, if anyone uh, is aware of the way movie in- the the actual distribution process works with movie theaters, um, movie theaters have a window of distribution that they are licensed to to uh, engage in for certain movies. And if uh, studios uh, nig on that, they can. They can be liable for um, uh, for a loss of profits. Now, uh, AMC uh, didn't take very kindly to the fact that uh, Trolls had been released to VOD, um, and uh, are are suggesting now that they will not be taking any Universal movies uh, for the next period, which includes your beloved Fast and the Furious franchise. Yes, well, and here's uh, and the other thing. among among many others. I thought that they, it, had, it had escalated beyond that. I thought that that now. Universal has just said, we're doing this. And AMC said, we will not put any of your films that you do this with in our theaters. Like, yeah, I, I thought it's escalated to that point. Yeah, and, and you have to, you know, you do have to look at it from both points of view here, which is to say that, um, you know, AMC's business is is collapsing in front of them. Um, and the, you know, part of their business isn't actually just the brick and mortar theaters that they own and, and run. It's actually the intellectual property that they are able to license in order to have um, movies play in their theaters. Well, know, well yeah, the but, it, it, but it, it is the brick and mortar. Like, that's the thing. AMC does not have a business if they're not, sh- if, they, if they don't have a place to show the movies. No, but but they can pivot those brick and mortar into other things. Those are those are transferable assets. The main core of their business. What though, could they transfer? Is, what could they transfer it to? They could transfer it uh, at this point. They could put it. They could make it, sell the buildings. They could make it into makeshift hospitals. For all I know, they could do all sorts of things with that. Oh, with like that brick the and mortar. physical assets. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought you meant their yeah. business model. Yeah, but their business is based on being able to license movies so that people will come see them, and they have a they have a a unique. Uh, agreement with studios to do so and so to see that relationship fail uh, amongst the fact that they, they don't have people coming to the theaters right now is uh, a challenging time for them so um, and, and on the other side of it Universal or any any big uh, distributor at this point or any big production company uh, production house at this point really has to consider is like where are we going to have these movies play and so I think one of the things that will happen is I my prediction is AMC is trying to uh, move into the home video VOD market in some way um you know with video on demand or something like that or partnering with fandango or any sort of any any number of ways they'll be trying to pivot those license agreements and do something with their brick and mortar kind of uh, facilities and at the same time the studios will be trying to do the same thing um and so basically for us the consumer movies are coming to our houses in some way i think that's really what's going to happen yeah um and what what that means for um, the theater business is kind of, is is going to be pretty fascinating. Can I make? The other side, can oh, I make? Sorry, a, go ahead. Uh, uh, I was thinking about this a lot today. Actually, I was reading a bunch of articles on it, and I watched some some YouTubers that I trust with all sort of digging into this information. And um, I, how do I put it? I'm not a fan of the institutions of AMC and Regal, the larger, huge chain things. I like Alamo because I think Alamo is moving uh, the theater-going experience in the right in the right direction as fast as a, as a corporation can do. Uh, and obviously I love indie house cinemas and places where people who love movies are working at the movie, right? 
Um, and not to say that if you work at an AMC or a Regal that you don't love movies. I'm sure you do. I'm saying from a corporate level, just how I've seen those establishments run. I think they spread their entirety of their resources that they run for films, like to to run a building that shows movies too thin. I I, I think um, they don't pay. You know, they don't. I don't know. I don't know if the pay specifically they don't pay enough, but uh, that is possible. But also, every time I'm at one of these places, it always seems understaffed, no matter what time I used to go to them. Um, their, their, their business that they are running in, in my opinion, and I guess this is a little bit of a hot take, uh, from the corporate level is a bit predatory in a sense of they're the only sort of games in town. This is how the deals have always been done. So this is how the deals are always going to go. And we're seeing in a, in a, in a, I want, I, I will not use the term post COVID. I will say current COVID world, um, that the rules are changing. And I think this is a very dangerous game, but a necessary one almost for AMC, Regal, all these people to do with Universal to say that they won't do it. Because if what if like during this time, if one or two more uh, larger studios release a film that was supposed to come out and it does gangbusters at home, that's the nail in their coffin. Like it, it's just a matter of who's going to swerve first at this point. The interesting thing you brought up, Shahir, is the um, is would would AMC get into a streaming service, right? Like or something along those lines, team, team up with Fandango or you know whatever. But at that point, this is the weird part. There's no reason for movie studios to want to partner with that. Because there's already enough existing streaming services where if they want to sell specific movies to streaming services, they can do so. The movie studios themselves, if they wanted to further flood the market, because like, you know, CBS was doing it. Almost everyone has their own streaming service now. So there could be, uh, you know, for the larger things, larger studios, they can make their own streaming services. Um I'm going to have my own party with uh, hookers and booze. I mean, right? kind of, right? <laughs> and this is, but this is my point. The only hold that the large chain brick and mortar movie theaters have is that they were the place that people expected to go see movies that should, in most likeliness, have the best quality place to watch a film. It's like precedent and uh, and structure, right? And you take that structure away, and they have no bargaining chips, like. Other than precedent, it's yeah. it's it's very strange. Um, but I don't think I I think this is where this is my prediction. I guess as after all that, theaters that have been innovating, uh, whether they be small indie places like uh, the Nighthawk or um, uh, the 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 Alamo Draft House at that sort of level, I think they will find ways to survive. I do not think that AMC and Regal and the large chains will survive this in, in in a current state. And while it does make me sad that like a lot of theaters will close um, for good, especially with the jobs, especially for the people on the ground, that that's terrible. Um, but they've run their business in my opinion, poorly. And I think that's going to be, it's, it's just going to, it's not going to last the way it has. It's not going to go back to normal. Uh, the only thing I'd take umbrage with is the idea of they've run their business poorly. They are a thriving business, and movie theaters 
have had a challenging time with the with the with the rise of streaming but it is kind of like this is the nature of what their business is and a lot of their you know a lot of their business is predicated on the agreements that they make with distribution houses sure and uh you know i've touted this book a number of times everyone should take a read of this book it's hollywood economics by edward j epstein um it's a really 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 fantastic look into the into the way movie theaters you know the relationship between movie theaters and studios and if you remember uh back in the hollywood heydays the reason why movie theaters really exist today is that studios initially tried to vertically integrate with movie theaters and owned the movie theaters themselves, and that was deemed um, uh, monopolistic. Yep. And 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 now we have this relationship with independent, you know, with movie theaters and independent movie theaters and studios the way it exists right now. So. Um, <clears throat> You know, like, yes, there's a lot to be said about the way in which movie theaters are, are not adapting with the times, but they have been thrust. And I think every um, every business right now, including my business, for example, is dealing with the fact that we have an unexpected, you know, for lack of a better term, an insurance um, policy, uh, an act of God is how you would describe mm-hmm. what's happened right now. And so we are all dealing with the fact that business as we know it and understand it, life as we know it and understand it is fundamentally changed changing and had this not occurred um you know we would be dealing with the ordinary pressures that you know that that comes with running those businesses you and i are patrons of amc you and mm-hmm. i are patrons of regal cinema i these have a regal are, pass that i'm still paying regal for pass. yeah so you know these are places we go to uh and and my collective memory are not of going to art house independent theaters which is what i love my collective memory of growing up with the movies is of going to places like this but haven't so, you witnessed haven't you witnessed the d- decline in, of course, in... I've got lots of things to complain about. I've also got lots of things to complain about in terms of the way studios make movies. But sure, but, but my but suggestion there's... here is is that we are we are to say that they've run their business poorly and therefore deserve to be put out of business is not empathizing for the fact that they are dealing with uh, we are all dealing with a major event right now. Sure, and many things, uh, including things we love, will go away, and and we. What the negotiation that has to go on now is how the audience reacts to it, what it means for the content. I think one of the interesting things right now is Christopher Nolan is doing a lot of advocacy for theater chains staying open and uh, maintaining that relationship because he has long been an advocate for the cinema-going experience. So the fact that the idea that all of his movies will now become on streaming services, regardless of where they're streamed, is not something that he is advocating for. Right. Um, so he wants he wants a venue for AMC to be you know to exist, and I think. You know, this is just going to be the nature of what happens in the next few months. Right. My, or my, years. I think I think my point was more not that oh, COVID happened, so they deserve to go under. That's not what I was saying. What I'm saying is they've the the, the quality of the movie going experience at large chains that I have experienced. Again, this is anecdotal evidence. Email us in onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com if you have great or horrible experiences at at any sort of chain. We'd love to hear about it and sort of just, not now, of course, but like previously, or if you've noticed a trend or you completely disagree with something that I or Sheer is saying. Um, the It's just that over, over the, I don't know, last 10-ish years, I've just watched... Uh, both in uh, movie theaters in New York and New Hampshire and whenever I go to like uh travel to the West Coast or stuff like that like I've yet I've I've yet to I've never had a really great movie going experience at, at at uh from a quality perspective or a cleanliness perspective or uh not having to go and friggin talk to the uh, f- try to find someone working behind a snack counter to talk about how the movie's out of focus or shifted to the left like there's just 
a lot of things that they have cut corners on. Right. And but that's and, got nothing to do and, with the, with the well, current situation. But hold right? on. No, it doesn't. But but this, the current situation has exacerbated uh, a problem exponentially. My the, the movie theaters, in my opinion... And I, 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 and this is very, very loose. But just try to follow me where I'm, where I'm going here, because I'm not sure if it's entirely correct. Because you can't predict this shit, especially with like second and third waves of the virus and all that stuff that's that's inevitably going to come down the line. Um, but if theaters had been offering experiences that, and and I don't just mean like what you're watching, but like the quality of experience overall. Of uh, uh, of what paying to go to the movies really should be. If they'd been offering that for l- the longest time, I feel like they'd be able to bounce back easier. But people are now kind of seeing it, especially, and again, this is just weird sort of economics, especially with a kid's movie like Trolls World Tour, right? Like, if you have four kids, three kids, you and the, so four kids and a parent that's going to run you with snacks and everything, that's probably going to be like $130, or something like that. And from an economic standpoint, or you could rent it at home for nineteen ninety nine, Right. But, and it's like... But, I, but I, again, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I think you're conflating what I'm talking about here with, with something entirely different, which is that the theater quality experience is ever-changing, but there are a number of reasons for that. One is the, the economics of playing a movie has changed over the last 10 years with the fact that internet connections are now much faster and we can get high-quality streams at home. Yeah. Um, the rise of streaming services have meant that people aren't uh, limited by their by their proximity to a movie theater in order to get uh, movies at home. 100%. Um, and, and the quality of service, you know, in my opinion, has actually uh, increased across movie theaters that I've seen. Like, I've, I have been vastly impressed by projection qualities in theaters and generally I'm impressed by service providers so I you know I have things like the arc like theater um, AMC's premier services I think have actually been really positive steps that has gotten not, all of that is very different to the fact that their relationship with studios is changing right now because of the fact that people can't go t- physically to the movies they are and different that is, they are different issues one is exacerbating the other now in my opinion. Again, I don't think that they you're not going to find the direct straight line. I'm saying that only something like the pandemic that's going on right now would be able to actively shake the uh, relationship between studios and brick and mortar movie theaters. I'm saying that the uh, just another crack in that foundation is the fact that I it feels like they're stretching that. I mean, AMC was rumored to be going bankrupt right before this pandemic happened. That's not the sign of a business that's doing great. Like, anyway, we're a little bit off topic from this, although maybe we're not because it all does tie together with with the film we're talking about. Yeah, with Six Underground, which is interestingly, you know, I think another factor in the reason why AMC... Uh, is having a difficult or, or or is potentially having a difficult time is that now we are in the era when a hundred and fifty million dollar movie is released straight to uh, Netflix yeah. and produced by Netflix, so entirely bypassing the cinematic experience altogether. Um, a third factor in what we're just talking about right now is that, uh, and although it might be uh, a smaller part of this, is that the Academy Awards recently announced a change in their rules for this yes. year, including the fact, uh, in, including the change of one of their most important rules that a movie theater, a movie does not have to play in a movie theater in order to be eligible for an Academy Award. Which means uh, Six Underground could be legitimately uh, um, 
uh, up for an Academy Award for visual effects or for whatever. Uh, or no, actually, sorry, let me take that back. For best picture um, <laughs> and best actor um, um, because of the fact that it, it, it is no longer streaming. Now, Netflix has in the past... Uh, released films like this to theaters so that they can be eligible for the Academy Awards. Yeah. And they certainly did that with The Irishman. Um, but they, uh, I'm not certain if they did that with Six Underground. Um, I, I, I don't I'd think they did. imagine they may have had a small release just for some reason. You know, they're usually in, a, in agreement with the actual filmmaker themselves. Eke it in um, there, yeah. Yeah, but um, but so that relation, you know, everything is fundamentally changing. And the fact that, you know, like you and I have had shitty experiences in AMC theaters or Regal theaters or anything like that doesn't fundamentally alter the fact that all movie theaters, including the Alamos, including the Nighthawks, including all the little independent theaters, are going to be having a very difficult time no, as they renegotiate the fact that we are living in a world where social proximity is entirely tra- transformed yeah. and transformed very suddenly. Let's talk about, like, for instance, at, uh, you know, vaccine created we're okay for a while until the next nightmare scenario comes up, right? right let's let's talk about that world right in, yeah. in this is just i can only speak to personally if that happens mm-hmm. and there's let's say then at that point a bunch of movies just go into on demand versus uh theater going experience right they're both yeah. let's say they happen at the same time or they're just switched up or whatever it is i gotta say i would still go support theaters that give me a, a great movie-going experience like the Alamo Drafthouse. Again, of it's different for but, every person. However, however, if Warner Brothers only releases Tenant to AMC theaters, you are going to see Tenant at an AMC theater. Right, right? which I think is a bit of a stranglehold in the... That, I guess that's what my thing is, right? Mm-hmm. I don't like the stranglehold. because it that, should, is the rela- that is the relationship of that business. But it was. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's not going to be the same, especially if, and it, it may, you know what, maybe there's just a little bump in the road, it's going to shake and it's going to go back to the way it was. I don't think it will. The fact that Universal is doing this is a flare, like like up in the air, not like a flare up, like like a signal that, yeah. that this is possible. And Trolls was really the signal. Now, granted, a kid's movie and its marketing and its budget and its profit are different than other genres of films and all of that thing. I think that Trolls World Tour... Is getting a lot. Is got a lot of clout because it is in fact a family film, um, and it is. And 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 you know people are stuck at home with their children. Yep. And this is a you know that is a the nature of of why that film is overperforming. It has actually made, um, I think it did, three hundred million dollars in a couple of weekends, which is far and away higher than what it would have done if it had actually gone to the theaters. Yeah. Um. So look, the the nature of the business is changing. I um. Uh, again, you and I speak from a point of privilege in that we sure. have, uh, you know, we have a the financial resources um, and the wherewithal to set up and the space to set up home theaters at home mm-hmm. that replicate the cinematic experience. Um, so for us, going to the movies is um, a little bit less of an ex- you know experience. But but when we were growing up, for example, um, going to the movies was a sort of uh, a you know a pilgrimage of sorts. You know, like it actually meant something. And there are many people for whom who may love movies uh, the way that we do, and hopefully the way people listening into the show. Otherwise, that, what are that, you doing? <laughs> that, that the cinematic experience is still part of that, and and to say that that's going to go away is uh challenging 
it's very challenging. And and again, and if you think about countries or places that don't have the facilities or you know like the capacities that we have been able to bring into our homes, um, you know this this equation entirely changes. And right now, I think there's two things happening. One is that there is a glut of movies that are still waiting to be released. Yeah, they're just sort completed. of in the hopper. That are they're the ones that are going to be suffering the most, you know. So and Christopher Nolan's film Tenant is uh, will be the touch point in terms of how that you know that film of any movie that was going to come out this year was the one touch point that I think everyone was going to go see in a movie theater, and that is uh, almost out of the question now. So so wh- what happens to that film? I think will 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 signal the way for a lot of movies. Um, then the second thing is is uh, Lionsgate, for example, released a document this week on on uh, how to produce films in a post COVID era, mm. um, and, and in terms of like what safety protocols are in place. And it's really fascinating because there's a couple of lines that I've I've read through that document, which are really point to there the, the one line is which suggests an entirely different business model. For example, one there's one line in there which says. Uh, for scenes re- requiring extras and uh, large crowds, please use CGI characters as much as possible. Whoa! And that's that's a lo- it's a single line in this document, and and it was underlined by friends of mine who work in the VFX industry uh, really highly because it was like this isn't a completely change of the guard as far as we know in terms of how we make films. And that guts an industry too. Well, it it it, it over it, it inflates an industry and it guts an industry, right? Like yeah, it completely yeah. transforms an industry, and which I guess because, is what we're talking about in general, regardless. Yeah, and it's not because one industry, you know, like because production was poorly run or something like that. It may very well have been, but this is just a transforming the way the world has changed you know um uh seemingly also you know look again uh the the actual nature of the types of films that will be made from this point is going to change like i can't imagine two actors being told that they need to be intimate in a scene are going to be entirely comfortable with that in the way that they previously might have been well i'm guessing there would be an extreme amount of testing if that were the, the case I guess maybe I guess so, but even if you were extremely tested, would you feel comfortable, you know, being asked to be intimate with someone who is not in your immediate bubble? Uh, it um, depends on where we were in the world with it. It depended on what the tests were. It would depend on the paycheck. There's a lot of different I, I'm, things. Matt, I'm not asking you specifically. I'm asking the question. I'm answering the, facetiously. I'm saying that th- those things are all things that not just for me would come into play if someone was deciding to do that or not. We haven't even mentioned the fact that you know the pornography industry is a billion dollar industry that all. Almost now cannot produce anything. I I think you know. So I'm curious yeah. what happens to that entire. And remember, all of these industries like that. You know, you might sort of scoff at the idea that I just mentioned the word pornography on the. You know, in relation to this conversation, but they don't. You know, in the way economics works is that they don't just. It's not just the singular industry. It feeds a lot of people in different areas. It feeds manufacturers of you know like uh, uh, technology manufacturers. It feeds people on the ground. You know, janitorial staff. It feeds uh, people who make food for those industries. You know, yeah. everyone around these things gets a fair it and whether they're poorly run or not is is besides the point in that everyone is going to be affected by this and entire industries are changing sure yeah i mean i I don't disagree with any of that yeah so uh regardless of that six underground a film uh by one of the highest grossing filmmakers of all time uh was released by netflix earlier this year a lot and with a budget of around 150 million dollars alongside another film by a filmmaker uh, of of note and merit uh martin scorsese and his film the irishman with a huge budget as well and these films were both released to the uh to the home market and and interestingly i think one of the things about netflix obviously in this case is that they they are exp- they are pushing the 
boundaries in terms of what is a on on demand release um, and what is a you know and this is actually even the phrase on demand doesn't quite encapsulate what Netflix is because on Netflix is a streaming service so uh, you're not paying for things on demand you're suddenly turning on your TV and hey this movie Six Underground which I didn't request or demand is suddenly accessible to me mm-hmm. um, and it it signals uh, a couple of things because because Six Underground typically and Michael Bay in particular is not a filmmaker who does director video movies, um, and that is a that's been a hallmark of his entire career. Not since the uh, days of Meatloaf has he done things that grace television or yeah, a Got Milk uh, ad or a Got Milk commercial or a Verizon commercial, you know, um, or or particularly uh, Victoria's Secret. Oh yeah, uh, uh, which uh, which well to be fair, most of his films are still Victoria's Secret commercials. True. Uh, actually, to be fair, most of his films are still commercials. Um, True. It's it's been an. Uh, I, I think it. Uh, this film obviously was was cr- made and released prior to everything that we're experiencing right now. But it is, you know, for those of us who are thinking about the theatrical movie going experience, and particularly the the idea of going to see a movie like this. You know, this this to me is the the kind of Friday night popcorn movie that you would typically express. Um, the fact that this is accessible, made, and it's not a it's not a counterfeit of those types of movies. It is one of those types of mm-hmm. movies accessible immediately in your homes right now. So I think that's, to me, that was kind of an interesting reason to want to do this film. Um, you know, we, t- we spent a lot of time talking about The Irishman. Uh, last year, we talked a lot about Roma, and those were films that I was just like, I must see these movies. Um, but this is a film that's sort of in the same elk in terms of the way it was released and distributed, but for the exact opposite reason, which is that this is a movie, while I was excited to see The Irishman at home and Roma at home, this is a movie where I ordinarily just wouldn't look for this kind of movie unless I was going for the theatrical experience. I feel like I would look for this kind of movie, but it, the interesting thing that happened is this movie came out, what, two months ago? Three months ago? Yeah, not earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, and I was always like, ooh, I'll watch that. And never did. And <laughs> And uh, because it is something that's in my wheelhouse. I love Ryan Reynolds. I think Michael Bay's action uh, sequences are good. I'm not a, I'm, you know, the, the, his films of late have gone back and forth for me. But, but uh, I know what I'm getting. That's one thing that I'll always super respect Michael Bay for is if I'm going to see a Michael Bay movie, I know exactly what I will be seeing. Like not from a spoilery standpoint, just the style of what I'll be seeing. Um, which is which is great when you're spending money on a thing, knowing unless unless you're trying to be surprised, you know. There's always caveats, <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, I, I just found myself like when scrolling through, I was like, "Well, I, I'm not gonna watch it right now," and but I like wanted to, but not enough to do it, which is a weird feeling. Like, look, um, Irishman, Roma, for me, I was excited when those films came out, and I was like, "Oh, I'm excited to watch this." Click. And I watched it, right? Right. This was one where I'm like, I'm excited to watch this. And I didn't watch it until now. So, like, <laughs> there's an interesting – and I don't know if it has to do with the style or the pedigree or what it was. Um, I don't know. I, I I don't know why I slept on it. I mean, I'll, I I can posit a couple of theories. One is that it's not a highly, it's not a well received film. For one, um, it's uh, it's not a film that certainly made. Um, uh, made the rounds in terms of critic circles, in terms of people talking about it as a must see. Uh, it certainly fell into the wheelhouse of oh, it's a mu-. and and I think this is maybe we should take a tangent before we begin on the movie itself is to talk about what a Michael Bay film signifies. Oh, oh, oh uh, we're gonna take a tangent now. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unlike this entire podcast up until this point. And I mean, and I'm talking about all 270 episodes. The yeah. whole thing. Um, Michael Bay is uh, a fascinating filmmaker. And I've done a little bit of a deep dive this week in terms of just, you know, one thing that's transformed in the last five years are video essays. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so video essays are that, that are dissecting uh, filmmakers uh, are, of course, um, you know, you don't have to go too far on YouTube to find uh, many of them. And, you know, the likes of uh, uh, Patrick Willems, Lindsay Ellis, Movie Bob, um, you know, who's been on the show, Be Kind Rewind, uh, who's also been on our show. Um, you know, it, it they, Nando they, V these Movies. People, yep, yep. Uh, Mike, uh, movies with Mikey. Mikey. Um, uh, these are all wonderful, wonderful um, uh, writers and uh, thinkers who are producing video essays on a lot of filmmakers, and 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 three of them had had produced work on Michael Bay, and and I watched all three of them with a sort of interest in. Um, I think a central thesis about Michael Bay's work that ran across all three of these different video essays and across uh, a lot of different, you know, writing about Michael Bay, which is, you know, basically coming is wrestling with the idea of auteur theory and Michael Bay. Um, you know, Lindsay Ellis did a wonderful, um, you know, I think it was a 12 part series called The Whole Plate. The Whole Plate. Where she devotes an entire episode to like the idea of auteur theory and Michael Bay. Patrick Willems has a video called um, uh, "A True American Auteur," a true American artist, I think it's called. Uh, you know, again, devoted to w- what does Michael Bay signify and yeah. what does Michael Bay mean to the idea of auteur theory. Um, even I think it was Tony Tony Zhao, I think is his name is, or Every Frame of Painting, mm-hmm. did a really interesting look at like what is the Michael Bay aesthetic, and and Michael Bay himself has played into this. You know, there's the famous Verizon commercial where. Um, you know, he says, you want to see something cool? If I direct a movie, it's going to be, it has to be explosive. And then, you know, he points to the screen and explosions happen. I think Michael Bay signifies something. And and what all of these video essayists are talking about is the fact that um, love it or hate it, it's impossible to deny that there is a unique singular aesthetic going on with Michael Bay. And it's an identifiable one that we all come to recognize because there are many filmmakers that work like Michael Bay, yet Michael Bay is the touch point from who we know. And I, you know, I think that was sort of an interesting thing because the, the term that um, was conjured recently or, you know, maybe four or five years ago um, in association with uh, a streaming service, Mubi, and their uh, and their online uh, magazine, The Notebook, was vulgar auteurism. Um, and the idea of vulgar auteurism was uh, was basically uh, looking at uh, filmmakers who normally aren't considered within the pantheon of auteurist theory uh, in a classical way. Now, I think for me personally, that is a, a misalignment of what auteur theory has well, been. And I think that's a lot of the, the criticism of what vulgar auteurism has been. That's my but it's question. Not to say, it's not to say that that term didn't gain some weight. And it was to say that that, you know, in popular culture, at least in popular conversation, you know, in, in, in sort of normal conversation, auteur theory and Michael Bay aren't necessarily put next to each other uh, in an everyday context. Well, so could you could you for the listeners at home and actually myself, because I don't know if they if I if I know if there even is one. But like, what do you consider the definition of auteur theory? Uh, so auteur theory, uh, you know, dates back to the Cahiers du Cinema um, uh, group of filmmakers, and that was uh, people like the likes of uh, Jean-Luc Godard and... Um, um, All you need is a girl and a gun. Yeah, all he needs is a girl and a gun. Yeah, and Francois Truffaut, and these and the thing is the 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 inception point. And this is going off memory from from film school, yeah. by the way. I haven't got any documents in front of me. Um, the inception theory for auteur theory, 
the inception point for auteur theory is that is that we can look at the body of work of a filmmaker and see tendencies which distinguish that filmmaker from any other filmmaker. And those, uh, I, I believe the auteur, the auteur theory people call it the du politique du cinéma, um, which meant that it wasn't just a, is, it's not just an aesthetic consideration. It is the relationship between the aesthetic and the voice of that filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So what is it that, that this filmmaker is generally concerned with over time and the way in which they depict that, that relationship? And what they, what, you know, what, there's a lot of you know conflicting theories about the validity of auteur theory, um, but it has you know like the the term auteur has has gained into popular culture largely because of the Cahiers du Cinema people, um, because it signified for uh, it gave us a, a sort of tool set for how to read a film. And you know I'll say for myself my own personal biases is that my entire um, film going uh, experiences and knowledge is based primarily whether I knew it or not before I had even read auteur theory was based on the director's name so when I was younger and I would know that Steven Spielberg was making a film I uh, I came to that film with a certain expectation knowing what I knew about Steven Spielberg and and you know that carried all the way through I found you know for me personally I was always interested in who made a film yeah and what the what the making of that film and it was only later that I expanded that into the writers the directors the actors sure um, cinematographers you know well there's an so, interest oh sorry yeah go ahead I was gonna say the the interesting thing there is because film more than well honestly I was gonna say more than most but I guess that's not true but so I'll just back it up uh film is a collaborative medium. Right, and uh, it's not like a single painter or a single vocalist or um, you know a single author. Um, so it's it's interesting because we as humans like do like to put things in little boxes for better or worse. Uh, and same thing for me. I I looked for directors before I knew kind of the 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 machinations or or or, or cared to learn the machinations of the actual industry. Now, granted, I've always taken auteur theory, and again, I, I, this is I don't I learned it forever ago, and your definition sounds very very good. Um, but basically, what I sort of took of it, if I'm going to take the the lowbrow of it, it's like, can you tell that this person was literally had this thing by the reins, like? It is it is a thing that you can see across their body of work that you know that for better or worse, they had control over this unwieldy giant group of people because you can see both in the aesthetics and in the style and in the content that was made that it fits into what you would consider the wheelhouse of filmmaker X, right? Right. Um, but the interesting thing about that... I, 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 there are also directors uh, who I cannot think of right now, but I think it'll actually make my point better that I can't think of them that are a bit more chameleon-like, mm-hmm. right? Like they can, they can, they they're like almost like the uh, not the job a day. I forget the phrase I'm looking for, but like the folks work, that can turn work, out great uh, workmen, workmen. Yeah, they can turn yeah. out great content, but you're not remembering their name, nor will you remember a specific style that they have because they're it's a little more subtle or not sort of like all the way in your face like anyway my, my point is with with auteur theory i always just sort of took it as like it seems like a very in-depth complex way of saying you can identify someone who's controlling the the style of a film and style right. in all of the word like not just like aesthetic style so um 
I, th- that's not incorrect. But the thing is, I, I think you know the the the, the broader. The Cahiers du Cinema people weren't just looking at this as a way of categorization. They were looking at it as a sense. They were basically saying, cinema is an art form that should be determined uh, as as meritorious as every other art form that we're considering. And again, sure. you're thinking about 1960s, you know, the, the the Nickelodeon theater, you know, people going to the movies kind of as a Saturday and spending all days there, and and not considering it high art. And what the Cahiers du Cinema people was were saying is that these should be considered high art, and that the people behind this are philosophers as much as painters are, or as writers are, or you know, whatever. And the 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 point there is the 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 the, the phrase oh. the poli- du, du politique du cinéma is not just about like again the relationship between the aesthetic and the technicalities of it because you and I both know that the the way to wield the machine is difficult but the thing that I have learned certainly uh, over time is the way one person wields the machine is entirely different to the way another person wields the machine mm-hmm. and the 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 my own personal definition of auteur theory, um, which I've never written down or or kind, of, but I but I do talk about with people that I you know like work with. You just is, go up to people on the street before when you could, and or you, if I hosted a podcast, for example, it's something that I might talk about on a podcast. <laughs> um, but the 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 personal definition that I think about is, and I borrow it from uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's film uh, Stalker, Ooh. and in the film Stalker, um, the the film is about this uh, area called the zone. And what happens is, is when you go into the zone, your your greatest inner desires comes true. So people go to the zone because they want to, you know, get money or well, you know, riches or something like that. And the revelation at the end of the film Stalker is that this person uh, wanted to go revive his brother. Uh, or have his brother return to him, or something like that, who died. But he goes to the zone and into this room, and instead he's handed a, a, a suitcase of money and he commits suicide afterwards. I think it's been a while since I've seen the film, but the the point there is that the room reveals the truth of of you that was hidden to sure. begin with. And to me, the the definition I've worked on, uh, I've thought about in terms of auteur theory that I've applied into in 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 not only what you try to make but how you make it, is that. Filmmaking, while entirely collaborative, is also unstructured, messy, and almost um, by its very nature chaotic. The like uh, Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, though those those waves of chaos can reveal certain truths about a person. And and what I find is that uh, failures and successes are not so much um, a measure of quality, but a measure of what measure a reflection of the truth that that person um, uh, has revealed by making this film and whether they wanted it to or not. And so what I mean by that is that whether Michael Bay wants to be a lingerie commercial director, which he was, his films to me reveal a truth that that is what he is. And whether David Fincher has a nihilistic view of the world or not, his films all reveal that kind of truth. And it's the same with, you know, the Coen brothers as well. Whether Hitchcock has a sort of, uh, oh no, Stanley Kubrick has a sort of pessimistic view of humanity uh, or not is revealed by his films. In many ways, what I'm trying to say is, is that the the way to think about auto or the way I think about auteur theory is that the 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 work reveals a truth about that person whether they intended it or not so here's something interesting then okay so remember a little bit ago i was just sort of like oh there's directors that you know are a bit more chameleon and not sort of falling into that thing i might even sort of take that back a little bit maybe because here's here's the what i think would be the truth is that if 
people paid attention or like or not paid that's the wrong word like if if you decided to take director x who people don't consider auteur because they can do all sorts of things and all that jazz and whatnot and if you knocked the examination of their work down enough to a micro level you would most likely be able to glean those things if you just focused on their work um right. Because we talked about this with um, we talked about this with our Roma review. Yeah, we discussed the fact that only Alfonso Cuarón could make that film. Sure. the The thing about that though is, it, it, I this is where I get weird with sort of terms like auteur because at the end of the day, you really can assign it to any person who has a large enough body of work. Sure. Um, and then if that's the case it kind of loses a little bit of meaning. I loved what you said though, and I didn't know that about the origin of it. The the fa- it's not about just the thing, but it's about giving credence to the thing or the the people that make the thing. Like trying to find a way to um solidify that it is an art form by identifying that you can identify traits in a thing that the person made. That was a weird way of saying it, but I, yeah. I, I and, like and, I like that aspect of it. I was and, always confused, though, why the vulgar auteur thing even came up. Because, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, at least in the original theory or, or, or whatnot, but, like, you didn't have to be not vulgar to be an auteur. I think vulgar was not being used literally in this sense. Vulgar was being used as a way to identify... Uh, filmmakers like Michael Bay, for example, or John, I think it was, um, I forget the other filmmaker's name that they, that they really talked about, but, uh, or I think they even talked about Justin Lin, Mm. uh, in that sense, um, who directed a Fast and the Furious movie. But the idea that I think what, what vulgar, uh, or tourism was being, the the reason vulgar, vulgar tourism was, was coined as a phrase and it's only 2006 and it went through controversy in terms of like its applicability, uh, was the idea that there are certain filmmakers that we don't ascribe the word auteur to, you know, uh, over time, the phrase auteur has meant something different than what it was initially perhaps intended but it's also it's you know like all languages and all linguistics it is a you know it is a phrase that is invented by human beings as a way sure. to categorize it in ephemeral right like like there's no there's no I got meaning you. to to words to the word auteur it's it's just something that we sort of talk about and evolve over time so vulgar auteurism was basically a way to ascribe auteur theory to filmmakers who didn't necessarily fit into the category of auteurism that that the term that the phrase auteur had kind of started reflecting you know like when you even say the word auteur it means something different and if you went to the Cannes Film Festival and said oh there's you know there's this what the auteur Wong Kar Wai is here that means something different if you said the auteur um uh you know michael bay and michael bay to me is like the the perfect categorization for why a phrase like vulgar or tourism came around but i don't I think, personally that, think i don't think it is different that's my I think no that's no my take. and and i and i agree with what you just said which is that i don't i think the phrase or tour theory encapsulates both the michael bay and a wonka why yes. but but classically uh we have not ascribed the phrase auteur to a filmmaker like Michael Bay in the way that we would to a um, a Wong Kar Wai. And why do you think or, that is? That's because the because the the practice of auteur theory is uh, is a theoretical practice. It is a practice by art critics, uh, and it has managed to become disseminated into into the popular mainstream. But it's still a word that is kind of held. 
uh, in high esteem by people who, who actually have done a lot of work and a lot of theoretical writing about what the encapsulation of art can be. Sure, but it uh, does... Know, and, 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 it, and it encapsulates a lot. Like, it's not just the idea of, like, oh, this person lights something this way. It encapsulates both psychoanalytic it's theory, a whole thing. feminist theory. It's, you know, film studies is a gateway. You know, I always say film studies is a gateway into a lot of things. Sure. It's not just movies. But I find it interesting and a bit gatekeepy, and I know there's a lot of things that are this way, but, like, if the whole point is trying to find that truth based in all of those variables of making a film, right? Uh, the second you start giving things a side name or whatever, you're also sort of taking away the power of the original word. Like, language is interesting like that, and I do understand that it changes and and, and ebbs and flows with time. But uh, if the whole thing is about, you know, being able to identify the work of a person that is that that is it built a lot in in the ephemeral in in the I like that word like not only what you're seeing but sort of how it's making you feel and how it is lit sure but also what we're watching and why and what they're trying to say if you're if if the goal of that categorization is to say that um we can identify that something is being said or specifically brought through over the course of a body of work that's what's important the lens is important not the content upon which the lens is focused. So when, when, and I mean that not like a cinema lens, like just us looking at a thing. So, so it just seems a little bit a dismissive, a little gatekeepy when, when those, when you're starting to be like, oh, well, this is actually like vanilla auteurism or this is uh pumpernickel auteur or like whatever words you want to describe uh, to right. it. It feels weird because it's not supposed to be about the content. It's supposed to be able to about about identifying the content and, vo- right. and validating I, that you can do that. Now, I don't. I think you should think about the word vulgar auteur or the phrase vulgar vulgar auteurism in terms of a as a as a. Um, as a soft categorization, it's not a hard categorization, you know, like uh, for some people, James Cameron might be a vulgar auteurist, you know, like, so it, it's it's just the idea that that there that there was a, basically an idea to like try and encapsulate films and filmmakers who don't, you know, who don't have a big body of work or do not have a body of work that signifies what we classically think uh, the greater purpose of an auteur might be. Now, it doesn't mean to say that the word isn't challengeable, it isn't, you know, malleable. In fact, the word vulgar, the, the phrase vulgar auteur, um, you know, fell out of fashion as quickly as it came. Yeah. But, but I, I think there is some, there's merit to the idea that, you know, and particularly in the case of Michael Bay, um, that, that f- there are filmmakers from, from whom we don't prescribe the idea to. I think one important thing to note is that for many of the initial auteur theory you know writings we're all exclusively driven towards male filmmakers sure you know like female filmmakers were almost entirely uh you know uh, lift out of that you know lift out of that body that discussion and 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 you know the way in which we re-encapsulate that over time has meant something and i think for me the thing about vulgar auteurism that i think is a useful paradigm to think about um is that Classically, auteur theory was ascribed to filmmakers of note of whose whose body of work tended to reflect a broader meaning that was generally popularly and widely accepted. Um, But what vulgar auteurism, I think, can be useful in a way of thinking about, and particularly, you know, I'll I'll just say for me, is thinking about filmmakers whose body of work I actually don't enjoy that much and whose body of work I think can be demonstrably 
negative. Yeah, sure. And 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 you know, like the, it's a way of category. You know, again, it's loose, it's soft, it doesn't really mean uh, a hard much. It doesn't. Uh, you know, there's no one saying it has to be called this. Yeah, it's just a way of it's a it's a way of prescribing a a, a broad categorization to another to another theory. My 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 point being is based on the definition of autourism, it seems silly, redundant, and gatekeepy to put a second word in front of it to s- sort of further, s- like, you know, fragment the meaning of what that is. Uh, and I get, and I, look, again, we do it as human beings all the time. I get yeah. it. Uh, but it's just funny because, like... Think about I, the words hundred- African-American. Yeah, I know. I, I, think, I, mean? I think the uh, the idea of Michael Bay in general, uh, you you would be... I mean, he he is an auteur, whether we like his stuff or not. Like we we can do the things that you are supposed to be able to identify in all across all of his work, be it a milk ad uh, or Transformers Farts of the Moon or whatever the last one was. I don't know what it was. I didn't see the fourth Transformers, um, but I, I don't I don't think I've seen any since the second one. Yeah, uh, I, I'm under the giant scrotum. Uh, I'll tell you one thing in his autourism, he loves balls. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we've gone on for nearly an hour about this. Um, you, well, and, I, think and it, you, I think it's I think it's useful I, in I do terms too. of how we're going to have this conversation. I do too, because also I think the conversation's going to be short. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> six Underground. Can I read the IMDb? Certainly. <laughs> Go ahead. I like it because it's read, it's written like... I feel like Michael Bay would want the movie guy trailer voice person to write and to, for that presentation because it says literally this. Meet a new kind of action hero. Six untraceable agents totally off the grid. They've buried their pasts so they can change the future. Yeah, but um, like, but I love that it's meat, right? Like, it's like, ooh, like the, the, normally, like movie trailers in like the two thousands or the late nineties are like meat, Glenn. Mm-hmm. He's a something, blah blah blah. <laughs> Just like, I think I think it's appropriate given that the film is doing a lot of like, hey, I'm a ghost, and yes. like you know, and and a lot of work in terms of like uh, categorizing the people that they're that they're talking about. Unfortunately, the part that I I sort of don't uh, really follow the line of thought was a, was a new kind of action hero. I know. <laughs> these are these are the action heroes of every movie that I've seen in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um but uh <laughs> I'm very Look, I have a lot to say. Uh, I'm actually glad we did this movie because it's not a movie I particularly uh enjoyed. Uh I will say straight up I I I you know, the best I can say is I didn't care for it. Um, but but I have a lot to... I, I, I want to talk about this movie okay. to, uh, to a, a fair fair amount of depth if possible. Um, I'm curious what you thought about this movie. Uh, it was worth the price of admission. Which was, what, eight ninety nine a month or twelve ninety nine a month? I mean, if we break down the amount of Netflix I watch, it was probably like $1.36. Well, well, or is it cumulative, though? Like, how long have you been a Netflix subscriber? Oh, you know what? That's true. <laughs> then maybe it's not worth the price. No. Maybe it's worth ten. You know, thou- how many thousands of dollars you spent on Netflix? Sure. So uh, look, I, this movie falls into a weird category for me. It's one of those ones that, like, I'm really glad exists, but I didn't like, like... I, I was bored. I was I was the same. I was 50-50 bored or like going, holy shit, like in a good way. Like it was a very uneven ride. Yeah. Um, I 
look, the, 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 the film is visually stunning. However, you will have a hard time focusing on any of it uh, outside of the larger action set pieces because of the way this film is edited together. Also, the soundtrack is the most distracting thing I think I've experienced in a film since Suicide Squad. Um, There's certainly a couple of music cues which are supposed to be signifiers of uh, of uh, revolutionary change, which I think had the subtlety of a Pepsi commercial featuring Kendall Jenner. Dude. Uh, <laughs> to be honest with you. Dude. The, the opening <laughs> chase sequence had the music changed. Granted, it did go back to the same song twice, but it, music changed nine times. Right. The Spice Girls track came up. Yeah, randomly. Yeah. Um it, it's 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 a beautiful mess that I was bored by, but when those big moments hit, especially I think my favorite sequence in this entire film and, and just what sh- what showed like peak bay for me, uh when bay is bay. Mm. And I mean when B A Y is B A E. B A E. Um is uh the Hong Kong sequence. It's beautiful. It's Gorgeous. so fucking cool. And the yeah. end sequence is cool too. Um but like the the way this is presented to you as a package is so scattershot and and not clearly defined that it is hard to give a shit outside of when it slows down for 2 seconds and you can see something awesome looking. Right. Um no character is a character. In fact, they they I mean that's not true. Uh, they all have numbers for names, and that's fine. But like, you know that it's not. I guess that's not true. I think I'm I'm prescribing a little bit. I might back my opinion up there a little bit. The the characters are not deep, but they are characters. They are they are archetypes, right? Um, th- uh, they their interactions. While again, I couldn't pick them out of a lineup. <laughs> I did enjoy watching some of their interactions, and it's also interesting. Watching how Michael Bay thinks people talk or people mm. act is wonderful. I love yeah, it. It's 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 certainly uh, a sort of a bizarre mirror into you know as I say in the sort of Tarkovsky stalker kind of way. It's a bizarre uh, lens into the into the way his brain operates. Like there's two characters, two of the two of the 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 agents, the ghosts. I don't know what we want to call them. Uh, the the um, the ex. Uh, I believe it was two. And uh, three, I think it was. Melanie Laurent and Manuel Garcia Rufo. Yeah, they have kind of a like, a, are they kind of dating or like just sleeping together or like whatever sort of Are sub- they making love or are they fucking? But yeah, sub, sub, sub <laughs> plot. And by the end, it's the classic Michael Bay arc where it's like, hot girl just wants to fuck. But then like, the guy is like, oh, but like, meet my mom. And she's like, fuck you, I gotta blow shit up. And then during a fight secret, she's like, you know what? I'll meet your mom. And it's like- <laughs> This is how, this is the world Michael Bay lives in. And for as ridiculous as it is, there's something weirdly endearing about that. Maybe because it is so simple. Like, Mm. I like simple stuff from time to time. Um, Uh, So I've been yammering. (laughs) That's my take, man. If you like crazy action movies, cool, this might work. Uh, But there's there's a lot going on and not all good. Yeah. So again, I've been thinking about it from uh, I've been thinking about Michael Bay from a historical point of view is like where he came from and who he is and what he thinks of the world. You sent me a great Uh, article. 
Uh, yeah, the oral history of Michael Bay. Oh, you tweeted it. You tweeted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the thing that I you know to think about is Michael Bay obviously came out of commercial directing, but he came out of a school of uh, a, a company of commercial directors, propaganda films uh, that you know housed many great filmmakers that we see today, most notably of which is David Fincher. Uh, and you know, by all accounts, Bay was a Fincher acolyte from the very get go. Fincher was sophisticated, you know, dark with the still sort of sleek commercial exterior, whereas Bay was the kind of like sleek commercial exterior without the the interior sophistication that um that fincher seemed to possess and certainly if we play out the the their careers from this point forward that certainly seems uh applicable weren't they at the same uh, agency though like at the same level propaganda films yeah. yeah they were both they both worked for propaganda films uh at the same time and that's and and so bay would follow around fincher um you know as you know they had offices opposite each other or something like that i, th- I thought they was, were more equals not not like he was following him sorry i may have read well, the, no it, bay the, is much younger than fincher uh so fincher was a little you know these guys were little, uh, fincher jo- spike jones dominic cena mark right. romanick uh, I think they were all a little bit older, and Bay was very young when he came into that Copy. world. So he was like only 24 or something at that stage. Um, and I, I think to me, the filmmaker to really think about in terms of Bay's aesthetic as a precedent for Bay's aesthetic is Tony Scott, um, Ridley Scott's younger brother, who is, again, uh, similar to, to Ridley Scott in that, you know, both with the sort of glorious visual aesthetic that is basically informed the way we watch television commercials, you know, for the last. 30 years Um, uh, and, and, you know, with a sort of more uh, delirious sense of uh, of chaos and madness in their films, you know, the, which which eventually prescribes itself into action. You know, Tony Scott, of course, gave us uh, things like uh, Top Gun, and uh, Quentin Tarantino has been on the Ringer podcast uh, for a while now. Uh, you know, a few times now, and um, I, I, you know, it's funny to hear all these filmmakers coming on podcasts recently because I guess they have they don't have a lot to do. So, <laughs> hey, if you're a filmmaker uh, listening to this podcast, only move only movie podcast at gmail hit us up, we'll talk to you. Um, and, um, Tarantino, who got his start with Tony Scott, came on to talk about Tony Scott's aesthetic, uh, as being, you know, just something that Tarantino just cannot do. And he was talking about the film Unstoppable. I think Tarantino, uh, called Unstoppable one of his top 10 films of the 2010s. It's the Denzel Washington, Chris Pine movie about a runaway train, uh, which not a lot of people saw, but Tarantino watched the fuck out of that movie and (laughs) he talk about it a lot. Um, but, but, you know. Tony Scott's aesthetic and, and Michael Bay's aesthetic entirely line up with each other. And I think their worldviews in terms of commercials seems to line up as well. And I think, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, we, we didn't get to talk about this, but it was a stand-up special that, that I watched many, many times over, which was Hannah Gadsby's uh, Nanette yes. uh, a couple of years ago. And in that special, one of the things Gadsby talks about is the relationship between comedian and audience is an interplay of tension and release. She says, she basically describes like like the the master comedian, you know, the comedian who should be a, a master of their craft is, is their entire job is to imbue tension upon an audience and then release it and then imbue it again and then release it and then imbue it again and release it. And that is the the process of writing and telling jokes is you know creating tension and then releasing it. Um, and and I and I thought about that a lot when watching Six Underground because I think one of the things one of the essential elements that's missing here is a sense of tension and release. And when I watched Six Underground, I, I watched the first sequence like a few like maybe a month ago. I threw it on in the middle of the night and I watched it. <laughs> and I think Lindsay Ellis has this thing where she talks about the fact is like she'd watched Transformers twice and someone described a scene to her and she was like, 
I don't remember that scene happening. And then she went back and watched it. She was like, holy shit, that scene really did happen. Yeah. And and the question she asked is, why the fuck can't I remember scenes from a Michael Bay movie? Why is it that I've seen these movies many, many times over, but I can't tell you what happens in any of them? And and the reason, to, to me, that it comes down to both an aesthetic and a, and a sort of philosophical choice in terms of editing, which is that Bay himself, I think, is less interested in the sort of the pragmatics of building tension and releasing it as much as he is interested in the value of spectacular moments. Yep. So every moment in this film is spectacular. There's, there's nary a moment that is ordinary in this moment. It is all spectacular. But the problem with that sort of spectacular is that there is no ebb and flow for the audience to fight to to ground themselves within or to anchor themselves within what is happening enough to care and that's that thing that 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 hannah gadsby is talking about is tension and release when everything is spectacular nothing nothing is spectacular so i went back as i watched this film i actually i did something that i would normally not do which is i stopped the movie right after that first sequence um you know the the sort of the chase through paris it's a chase through italy you did some shots I stopped it and I, I, w- I found Mission Impossible Fallout and I watched the sequence in Paris in Mission Impossible Fallout, the chase sequence in Mission Impossible Fallout. And I started just comparing the two films side by side and thinking about the way in which this film operates versus that film operates. And the thing that you'll see in Mission Impossible Fallout, which I think Christopher McQuarrie understands because he's a writer as well, not to say Michael Bay can, can't be a great storyteller without being a writer, is the idea of tension and release, which is that Christopher McQuarrie in Mission Impossible Fallout is constantly building tension and then releasing it, allowing us to breathe within it. And then, you know, so the, so his his undulation between the spectacular and ordinary is much more like a sine wave, mm-hmm. whereas... Uh, um, uh, Michael Bay's undulation between the spectacular and the ordinary is much more like a flat line where we're always at spectacular and only very rarely dip into ordinary. Always at 11. Yeah, he's always at 11. Yeah, he's always turned up to 11. And and I think that is tiresome. Yeah. It is, you know, it is tiresome. Now, there are many things about Michael Bay which I deeply, deeply admire. Um I think, you know, and James Cameron has talked about this. I think uh, Steven Spielberg talked about this when they hired Michael Bay to do Transformers Dark of the Moon. My, only Michael Bay makes Michael Bay movies. Yep. Uh, although you would argue Peter Berg has been nipping at the heels for a little while sure. now. Um, but but the, 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 the speed and the efficiency at which he wields the machine of filmmaking is unparalleled. Like, you know, his movies come in under budget, on time, and they're massive. He makes the he makes the complex look easy. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that is sort of striking is if you watch a movie like Pearl Harbor, is that the set pieces towards the end of Pearl Harbor are incredible. And you're sort of like, oh, my God, how did he sort of like... You can see that that's the thing he's really interested in, whereas the stuff at the beginning, which is basically Titanic yeah. in Hawaii, um, really... You know, is laborious for him. It's funny. Um, uh, I don't know if Lindsay said this. Lindsay Ellis, uh, we're not on a first name basis. Um, the said this in the essays, but it was something I've always gleaned uh, with the ne- not having remembered Michael Bay scenes. Right? You never remember Michael Bay scenes, but you remember Michael Bay shots. Yeah. Uh, the the I I could still every time someone says Pearl Harbor, all I see is Cuba Gooding Jr. at that fifty cal. Like yeah. Uh, when someone says Transformers, I'm sorry, the the 15 year old boy in me sees Megan Fox opening a car hood. 
Um, yeah, and this is uh, this is something I really want to talk about a little bit. Yeah, in, in um, more detail. and in this and in this particular film, every time someone has said Six Underground, I think of two scenes: either the the helicopter shot of the parkour guy running up the thing in in um running up the the like the diagonal like lattice work thing in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. or the first time you see the magnet go off on the cruise ship, right? And I'm like, yeah, and I get a nice like. I was like, oh, yeah, that was neat. But then when I think about it for a There's a whole lot of movie around that. There's a lot of movie around it. There's a lot of movie around that. And, like, again, think of the um, think of uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, The Dark Knight and the Hong Kong um, the, the, the Hong Kong mission that he goes into to recover sure. the lawyer, Andy Lau. Think about the way that scene plays out in terms of, again, tension and release versus the way this scene plays out, which is just all, you know, 11. It's, it's very hard to— You know what's it's interesting, easy to, though? It's easy to say that Michael Bay's is arguably— much more spectacular, like much more. That's what I would say. It's bigger. It's visually, you know, bolder. Its palette is more wonderful. His technical acumen with those scenes is is far more uh, impressive. Uh, but his ability to kind of engage us on it, a fundamental level, yeah, it, is very different. It means less. Yeah, it completely means less. Which is and, which is crazy, but it's true. <laughs> so for me, Michael Bay has worked best when his films are absurd. Like, ridiculously absurd. So, films like Armageddon kind of work for me. Sure. Uh, films like The Rock kind of work for yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's a special genius to the, the original Transformers, sexual politics notwithstanding. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, what I think was sort of miraculous about the first Transformers is, you know, and it's evident in this film as well, is this really goofy sense of comedy um, and his, his comedic timing. Like, and I think what was amazing about for me in Transformers is that there was almost a Buster Keaton-esque um uh, approach to the way Transformers kind of interplayed with the environments. Yeah. Um, there's a scene in the first Transformers that I think borders on genius, which is why I think Michael Bay kind of merits a discussion in, in every format, uh, in every, in every uh, avenue. But, but, but to be honest with you, I, I, you know, the film, and again, I'm not talking much about six underground because again, I didn't care much for the film. Um, <laughs> I think it's, 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 it's po- politics are, aberrant at best now there's been a long discussion uh ongoing about michael bay's relationship to the military and you know uh, like let's not forget no one almost everyone's forgotten that he made a movie but he made a benghazi movie uh just a few years ago with john krasinski um and you know like his uh i think there's a there's a book um uh that is about the relationship between the military and hollywood which specifically refers to michael bay um and and his work especially with transformers um and, and in terms of the fact that the military kind of views michael bay's movies as uh, military uh, recruitment videos yeah um and you can see that in you know in in the way that he depicts the military in all of his movies you know they, with they maybe are the exception of this one because there's a lot of there's some hardware, but no, but but his his approach to the politic in this film is basically the echoed politics of inter, of U.S. interventionism. Like it may be it, this movie might be couched in a sort of libertarian approach to like yeah, uh, I guess that you know skirmishing, you know, like moving against the the the, the bureaucratic red tape. Ryan Reynolds' this character is, ulti- is America. <laughs> Oh, he is America at best. He he. The way he looks really does feel like this should be a Team America uh, parody. This is, you know, the parody in Team America of Michael Bay's movies is this movie. 
Um, yeah. Just without wow. the military, the militaristic sense of it. But like the, there is a moment that is so tone deaf in this movie about U.S. interventionism, given the fact of like uh, America's history in Latin America, for example, and you know in Salvador and Panama. Uh, thinking about the way that this film is basically positing the idea that an Ameri- that a, a broadly speaking an American group would come in and instigate a coup d'état to replace the dictatorial leader of a country with someone that they feel is more appropriate, you know, entirely ignores the body politic of, of American history for the last 50 you know half century sure and it is and it is entirely within the worldview of you know what we would argue is the American militaristic outview of, of, of the you know it's geopolitics so it this movie is very very much um, you know Michael Bay himself has kind of kept his politics out of the public limelight for the, from what we hear he's actually not a conservative he's pretty much a, a fairly uh, a Democrat left-leaning person but his films do, certainly don't depict that um, and this is what I mean with that idea of like the Tarkovsky thing, which is that your your work reveals a truth about yourself maybe that you didn't intend. Mm. Um, so th- this movie is problematic on, on many levels, uh, if not for the fact that it's also, while occasionally staggering in all the ways Michael Bay's films are, also deeply problematic in all the way Michael Bay's films are. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you come back to Transformers, I think his view of women is oh it's fucking trash is it's i mean it's it's very much it's it's very much pornography you know and i i don't say that i I don't say that to be pejorative to pornography by the way no 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 it's softcore it's (laughs) i wrote down in my notes i was like oh softcore again i was like hi michael every time something that happened every time that michael bay did an auteur thing that i could identify him with i wrote oh hi michael bay in my notes but next to like oh hi michael bay softcore porn Oh hi, Michael Bay! Uh, <laughs> nut shot with a bowl of limes that then looked like two limes that were nuts hitting a guy in the nuts. Like I was just like, I can't believe this shit keeps going. <laughs> I think the film that everyone should go back and watch uh, is Pain and Gain. I have not seen Pain and Gain. I want to. I'm going Pain, to. Pain and Gain is really fascinating because so, so that conversation we had before about like. Um, how does a person make a film versus how another person would make yeah. a film? The auteur theory of it. Pain and Gain is ostensibly a Coen Brothers script. I mean, and not literally. It it, it it's very yeah. much Fargo. It's a, it's it's a it's a it's a Florida Fargo is the way I would describe that film. It's it's a it's a group of idiotic people doing crazy things, and and it presents a fairly nihilistic worldview uh, of the way people's interactions, you know. Uh, merit themselves however unlike the coen brothers in fargo who have a nihilistic worldview who who present a nihilistic worldview but seem to have some sense of optimism within that world worldview you know the last scene between marge and her husband is basically saying you know as simple as it is is that you know uh there there is we're doing we're not doing too badly yeah um Pain and Gain pretty much has that exact same scene in it with almost the same amount of horrors. But the worldview in Pain and Gain is much more nihilistic than anything the Coen brothers would ever do. It is, it is, there's a mean-spiritedness to his approach to characters <laughs> that that is... It, 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 it's not just across women in his films, but it's also across men in his films as well. I think Bad Boys 2 is also really mean... It's a very mean-spirited movie. Mm. Um, and I think while this film portends to be about people trying to do good this is the elon musk fantasy 
of trying to help out Thai di- cave divers. Yeah. It's entirely narcissistically driven. It is entirely egoistically egoistically driven. And the film doesn't interrogate that at all. This is this is, you know, uh without any of the sort of um thoughtfulness that we would expect from a film that is ostensibly talking about instigating a coup d'etat in a in a Central Asian country, you know, like and you know oh, they call I it believe Tur- I'm sorry, you didn't remember the completely uh, wonderful name of Turkestan. Turkestan after you know, like after Turkmenistan. There's a lot, uh, which a yeah. lot of the aesthetic borrows from Turkmenistan. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's it, this is you know like get beyond the spectacle. And what lies beneath is a bit of nails, you know, like it, there, there's there's just uh, a sort of mean spirit, a sort of underlying mean spirited of this film that is wrapped up in a sort of like, hey, let's just have a good time. And I find that problematic. But that's not to say I don't admire the 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 aesthetic qualities and the sort of sure the 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 way in which Michael Bay can machine it that you know like I I, I don't want to draw the comparison in the sort of pejorative sense that I'm about to draw it but I also admire Lenny Raffenstahl for the same reason you know like it's mm. just you know d- d- regardless of what their politic is their ability to like wield the machinations of cinema is remarkable um, and and I think the, the sort of conversation that we brought up at the beginning of this is the, you know, the vulgar or tourism is I'm not to say, I'm not to suggest, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, Michael Bay himself is, is a, uh, a nihilist, um, you know, uh, post-colonist, uh, uh, you know, gung-ho, militaristic outview of the world kind of person. But his films certainly point in that direction. Sure. You know? <laughs> Look, uh, 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 <laughs> It's it. This is the this. It's funny. Every Michael Bay movie I see, I'm always like, "Oh, he can't get more Michael Bay than this," <laughs> and then he does it, and I'm like, "Oh, I guess this is the bar now." This uh, is the bar. Yeah. I, uh, I I I I I look forward? Question mark to seeing what's next. Um, man, I think he. I think I think Michael Bay should make. I, you know, and I don't want to ma- malign the person himself. I know nothing about him, uh, and I am just a but a tadpole in the in the giant ocean in which upon which he is a whale. Um, but but there is moments of genius in every piece of every part of his film. Yeah, uh, and I think you know to look at and I think a straight up comedy from Michael Bay. And I think I think he I think he ultimately we tend to think of him as an action filmmaker. I think more than that, he's a he is a his genre is comedy. It just happens to manifest itself through action. Well, it's funny because yeah. didn't some people say that uh, he he's the kind of guy though in the in the article that you sent today or that you tweeted, mm. uh, like he's the kind of guy that will you'll be at a party and you'll he'll laugh at a joke someone says and then ask you aside like why was that funny? <laughs> like he's the guy he's the guy that um uh, I think Scarlett Johansson on the set after the uh, the premiere of the island or something and when she heard or whatever that he was going to be directing transformers she's like oh can i come can i go be the easy bake oven you know the transformer or whatever she said yeah. you know whatever and he goes he literally apparently with a straight face is just like there isn't one of those <laughs> like so it's weird i don't know if i'm going to give him the comedy line now granted you can be you can look at comedy think- very clinically and yeah. still be very funny um, I I think I what I mean by that is I think his 
I, I do think his his sense of comedic timing is timing remarkable. is great, and and I think and I think his physical comedy uh, is really wonderful. Like I think he really understands physical comedy really well. Like in a or in 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 a, in a in a Buster Keaton esque kind of way. Like that mm. that's how you know like prodigal. I think his sense of comedic timing can be, um, but <laughs> oh, I have a million dollar question to take us home, Shahir. Yeah, are you ready for this? Sure. I mean, we already know my answer to this, but if people need it, I can say it. Is Six Underground a film? Is Six Underground a film? Huh. So you're bringing it back to the conversation we had about uh, Mission Impossible 5 and Fallout? Jurassic World. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no fall, not Fallout, uh, but uh, Mission Impossible oh, 5. Oh, Ghost I, Protocol? Which, yeah, which I posited was a series of set pieces. No, from one no, Fallout is 5. No, oh, whichever. Uh, Ghost, Ghost Protocol versus Number four. Fallout. Yeah, yeah, and Jurassic World, which I posited yeah, was yeah. a um, was not a film, uh, a commercial a commercial endeavor to trying to re uh, retrieve our nostalgia as opposed to making sure, an sure, sure. Story. But this is a weird one, right? Like, I feel like this one might be a little harder for in, in your definition. Am I, I hmm. maybe I'm wrong? Um, I think I think if we were to follow the line of thought that I had um, uh, with those films, I would posit that this is not a film. Uh, but that is like linguistically, you know, as we've determined, is not a hard and fast rule. It is a rule to be interpreted and discussed as opposed to a, a literal sure. interpretation. So uh, I think if we followed the train of thought that I had with Jurassic World and uh, Ghost Protocol, then this is not a film. What was the, in what those, was the thing in on those Ghost terms? Protocol, though? Because I understand what you're saying from the Jurassic World perspective mm. of like the nostalgia grab and all that shit. Mm. But like, what was the Ghost Protocol one? For me, like the the the. The thing is, I, I I would posit that I have a fairly acute sense, uh, acute memory when it comes to movies, and that is not a movie that I think has anything t- that I can remotely offer you except for uh, cool set scenes, set pieces. And I think the the last Mission Impossible, you know, the mission, we're jumping back into Mission Impossible here, but it's <laughs> it's not a, it's not an unfair comparison because this borrows so much. I think Lindsay Ellis had this sort of great. Uh, 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 conversation which is that we we get too much into the weeds with what is a superhero film and what is not a superhero film and what is a science fiction movie and what is not a science fiction movie whereas what she posited is that all blockbuster aesthetics all seem to fall into one category regardless of what uh specific subgenre they come mm-hmm. from uh you know the the this resembles a Mission Impossible, which also resembles uh, a superhero movie. You know, like they 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 all fall within the sort of broader uh, spectrum of what the summer blockbuster has has come to exemplify, which is in terms of set pieces and and you know greater stakes. Um, but my point there is that for me, Ghost Protocol, and I know I'm like really on the really on the outskirts. Ghost Protocol. Yeah, on the outskirts with this, and uh, probably our friends at Light the Fuse podcast and Uvel Busters would disagree with me and have disagreed with me. But I found that the last two films before Fallout became very uh, delivery mechanisms for set pieces Wait, as opposed no, to actual narrative. Now I got to know. There's only five Mission Impossible movies. Uh, maybe you're right. Uh, th- there's three, which I think is excellent. And then there's four, five. There's two more that happened after after three. There and then there's Mission Ghost Impossible Protocol. four? Yeah, there's a four and a five. So, and this is the thing. I can identify... No, one, Ghost two, Protocol three. is number four. Then what is the one... Um, what is the one... No, because there was number three that J.J. Abrams directed. There was number four that uh, Brad Bird directed. There was number five, and Christopher McQuarrie's done two. Wait, I'm so confused because now a bunch of places are just saying Ghost Protocol is 
before. Ghost Protocol might be four. There might be a fifth one. I, again, I'm I'll, so I'll tell confused. you by. I'll tell you. I can. What I can. I can't list the names, but I can list the directors. It goes Brian De Palma, John Woo, J.J. Abrams, Brad Bird, Christopher McQuarrie, Christopher McQuarrie. That's six films. Weird. <laughs> Uh, write us in at Only Movie Podcast, and you won't have to do much research to uncover uh, where we've gone wrong with this. But there, uh, just tell us which other Mission Impossible movies and rank them for us if you like. Um, my ranking, and I think we've done this before, goes one, three, six, and then the rest kind of falls. Oh, together. I got it now. I got it. I got it. It's uh, what was the? It's Ghost Protocol. What's the other one? Oh, it's uh, it's uh, I just had it here. Oh, Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. That's right. See, this is my point here: is that Rogue Rogue Nation and Ghost Protocol tend to fall into like. I thought that was the same. Movies? I thought that was the same. I thought that was the same yeah. film. I thought you that thought was they were the same movie. movie. You know, um, but but you do remember Fallout, right? Yeah, yeah, I like Fallout a lot. Yeah, you do remember Mission Impossible one, two, and three. But whether and, and yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I was I was poking fun before. Whether or not I remember a film does it for me uh, yeah. doesn't make it a film or not. Uh, yeah. But but again, that's not we're we're too deep into this hour and a half right now to get into that. Uh, fun I, last I, was, obs- I just I just want one fun last yeah, observation yeah, yeah. with this, which is that if if Michael, I think Michael Bay always borrows from other filmmakers in terms of like the direction they're going. And the fun one that I love from this is that like Ridley Scott, he's willing to kill a Franco off in the first twenty minutes of his movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is the Franco's games at this point. Both uh, Dave and uh, James Franco is like we're available for one third of your movie. Yeah, Dave didn't even need to get out of the car. Yeah. Well, remember James Franco in uh, Prometheus? Yeah. Or, oh or Alien gosh. Covenant? Yeah. Oh my <laughs> yeah. gosh! So fun. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> should should people watch Six Underground here? Um, for me personally, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a fan, and I wouldn't really recommend it. Uh, so take it with what you take that with what you will. Um, it's not. I there there is something interesting about the harmfulness of a film like this, uh, and I and I think and I think a lot of critics. Uh, do need to think about that a little bit, but it's it's hard to argue with you know explosions, and you know, like, but there is a you know again think about uh, the people of of other countries viewing this this sort of broad spectrum of Americana. Um, think of the and, people of Turkestan. Yeah, Tur- yeah, Turkmenistan. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, yeah. I what about that, for you? What about for you? I is this a recommendation? Camp. There's there's nothing. I mean, look, mm. even unless you're trying to uh, identify the 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 oeuvre or the auteurness of Michael Bay and you want more fuel for that fire, there's no real reason to watch this. Like, <laughs> the, 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 again, there are amazing shots, um, but you can get a better experience and get this, like, and the overall, like, if you're looking for that testosterone explosionist, either in other Michael Bay films or in other action films. It's funny, I think in... um in a post John Wick world, um, this move, this movie, to me, and again, this isn't bad. It's just an aesthetic thing. Came off as a bit more cartoony, even though John Wick's worlds, like the the stunts aren't as crazy, but the the world is more fascinating. I don't know. I just if you're looking anything you're looking for in Six Underground. You can find a better version of it elsewhere, unless you just want that pure, pure bay straight into your veins, <laughs> in which case, Six Underground is for you. <laughs> this has been the only podcast about the film Six Underground. Shahir, when you are not hiring dead people 
uh, to uh, not be dead and take out any and every obstacle you have in in proving once and for all who might be an auteur. <laughs> Where can <laughs> folks find you? You can find me being incredibly vulgar on my website and my yeah. Twitter feed at www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Uh, Matt, when you are not um, uh, uh, fly- parkouring from your apartment to my apartment sneakily without touching the ground so you will have absolutely no social interaction, where can people find you? You can find me with a variety of wire and belt clips sliding across the skyline at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram and PSN, and of course, Emperor MSK on Twitter. Uh, please check out the good works we're doing over at Extra Credits. Uh, we are now, you know, speaking of politics, Shahir, we are now doing a series on dividing the Middle East. Um, oh, well, this <laughs> film should be informative. <laughs> no. <laughs> please go Please go watch that series if you'd like to know um, real history and, and things that, uh, you know, harmful things that happened, but yeah. real ones that aren't made for Michael Penny. And I, I'm really curious what people think of this film. Please email us yes. at, at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. Also, uh, uh, this is, you know, like, we hate to talk about our stats and stuff on the podcast, and I and I hate to bring it up, but I think we're seeing this trend across every podcast right now as podcasting numbers are going down uh, because people aren't commuting as much. So yep. you know, a lot of people were, were listening to podcasts while commuting. Um, please, if you, are, uh, if you are a listener and you're still listening in, let us know what we can do to kind of make your day better. Uh, yeah. If there's something that you're wanting us to, talk about uh let us know i know people have talked to us about the uh the cinema experience conversation which we've had in this we are got we do have a lord of the rings episode coming up eventually which i'm hoping to make a little bit special with a few uh a few special appearances in that in that episode um but please reach out to us we we like the cinema business we understand that the podcasting business is changing entirely and though we are not a money-making operation in any way shape or form we want to be able to adapt and and react appropriately so please reach out to us yeah and and look we we're we have no problem doing do, getting getting weird with it like because because again the, the movies that we're going to be coming out aren't aren't or are going to change in a weird way so uh you want us to do that classic you want us to do that other thing you want us oh to you do- know you know what we should do that could be fun what we could do speculative fiction, speculative speculative films. So we could basically, with our collective knowledge of auteur theory and the body of work of uh, that we have seen so far uh, from all, we could posit what Tenant could be about and do an entire episode devoted oh, to geez. speculating what Tenant could be about. So you know what's interesting about Tenant? I'm going to leave with this. Okay. I don't care about it. Really? I don't give a shit, man. I, I wish I did. I want to. I think the thing with Tenet is that we haven't. There wasn't an opportunity to grow the the expectation that they were hoping. You know, they they released the trailer a year early. I from, know, and it was robot a, farts in one scene, and then <laughs> I saw the the other trailer, and it looked like neat, but uh, it sucks because I know it's going to be great. I just don't. I, I'm not excited for it. I don't know what I don't know what it is. Um, I, I just the only reason I guess I'm using that as a sign point is that. Is that there is no other movie that is that was a surefire? We're gonna go watch this in a movie theater movie this year. Then Tenet. I don't you know. And, and this again, hot take on my side, and I I could very well be wrong. I think that group of people is shifting smaller. Hmm. Maybe. I I don't know. I mean, not because of the virus, but like the, <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> oh boy. just in general. Well, that got anyway, dark. <laughs> uh, 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I am very much looking forward to talking about Tenant and seeing Tenant. I just am not excited for it. I, I, I never, literally, if you don't bring it up, I don't think about it. <laughs> so you're basically saying, and this is not the correct spelling here, but Tenant is living rent free is not living rent free in your brain right now. I like it. I like I yeah. like what you're it's, selling. It's right missing there. it in, but I don't you know, care. Whatever. I'd like to buy five of them. I'd like to subscribe <laughs> to your zine. Um, anyway, everybody, uh, tune in next week when we talk about another movie. Uh, another random movie. We should just do uh, movie roulette. What's that? <laughs> we I don't know. We just pick a movie like and have to watch it right away and and then talk about it right away. Oh God. I movie mean, roulette. I, I don't know. Let's make up some new games. Let's we need make some up some new games. games. Can one just be we watch Jim Cotta and drink a lot? I've never seen Jim Carter. You're a mad person. <laughs> I've never seen Jim Carter. I did order a Blu-ray of Run, Lola, Run. So, oh, did you? Uh, I wouldn't mind doing that. I love that movie. Uh, I Yeah. No, I'd, I'd be keen to see that. I have the Blu-ray. There we go. Uh, until next week. We Bye, will everybody. not be running. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs>